We're trapped at desks and spend our days in front of screens. The modern narrative is that our jobs are slowly killing us. But Rutger Bregman thinks it wouldn't be a terrible idea for us to ditch the emails in favour of a universal basic income. This is Ideas at the House, and in today's episode, it's historian and utopian thinker Rutger Bregman, who argues that society would be a better place if we all had a guaranteed wage. He's in conversation with Emerald Ricci at Antidote 2017. We'll start by just the, the, the simple question of what is a universal basic income? Give us the concept. It's a very simple idea. So everyone would receive a monthly grant that is enough to pay for your basic needs. Uh, food, shelter, uh, clothing. So that's it. it. Basic income is really a floor in the income distribution. So no, it's not the same as communism. It's not that everyone will receive the same amount of money. It's sort of, you could see it as venture capital for the people, right? For the first time, everyone uh, will have the freedom to decide for themselves what to make of their lives. And say, for example, they can say, everyone can say no to a job that they don't want to do. Um, it's a very simple idea with quite radical implications. But it is the same amount for everyone. Yeah, yeah, it's a basic income that would, everyone would receive it, whether you're employed or unemployed, whether you're poor or rich, man or woman, doesn't matter, everyone gets it. And how's it calculated? And, and how on earth do countries afford such a thing? Mm-hmm. A big part of my, my book is about you know, how would this work in practice? That is the realist part of the the title. Uh, When I I started researching this subject in 2013, it was, well, in the first place, it was completely forgotten. And what I could find about it was quite abstract. So a lot of people thinking about, what is human nature like? What would you do with a basic income? What would I do? Will we all be lazy, etc.? And I was really interested in the practical question, you know, has it ever been tried? And it turns out that there have been huge experiments, forgotten experiments, in the 70s, in Canada, in the US, and since then in other places as well, where they actually tried it. And it turns out that it works very well. I even discovered, uh, which is probably one of the craziest stories in the book, is that Richard Nixon, of all people, almost implemented a basic income at the beginning of the 70s. In so, fact, it was very popular. I, I, I recall something like 90% of the population were in favour. Republicans were on board generally exactly. in mass. Yeah. It was at, the, at the end of the 60s, almost everyone in the US and in Canada believed that some form of basic income was going to be implemented. So, for example, John Kenneth Galbraith, the left-wing economist, he thought it was a great idea. But also Milton Friedman, you know, the, the neoliberal economist, they actually agreed on the need for a guaranteed annual income. Um, uh, Martin Luther King, he was in favor of it. So it, it's not that Richard Nixon was suddenly a great philosopher or utopian thinker. He was just saying like, oh, everyone wants this. Uh, let's do it then. And it's interesting because back then also it united the unions, the corporate sector, churches. And I was just getting in my notes here because there's a quote from Nixon where he says it was the most significant piece of social legislation in our nation's history. So why didn't it go ahead? It's a pretty bizarre story full of crazy coincidences. So what happened... US in politics. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what happened in the first place is that, um, well, everyone was in favor of basic income. Uh, Richard Nixon had a proposal for a modest basic income and it got through the House of Representatives twice. But then it hit the Senate floor and Dem- Democrats started to think, well, if this is going to be implemented anyway, you know, we want a higher basic income. 
So let's just vote against it now, and then it can probably get higher in the, in the second round. Didn't really work out that way. Uh, so it was, it was basically killed by the left in the Senate. Um, it was the, the idea finally died in 1978 with an experiment in Seattle, one of the big basic income experiments with a lot of positive results. So crime went down, kids performed much better in school. Uh, you know, uh, healthcare costs went down. Basically, it turned out that basic income was an investment that pays for itself in the long run. But there was one big problem. Uh, the researchers found out that the divorce rate went up by 50%. <laughs> <laughs> so you can imagine at that point all the conservatives saying, you know, we can't have basic income. Uh, this will make women much too independent. You know, we, d we really don't want basic income. The, the and, crazy and thing was, is that but was there a nexus drawn between <laughs> the basic income and the divorce rate? Was there an obvious kind of thread there? Well, that's what they thought, yeah. That was like really caused by a basic income, is that suddenly a woman can say, you know, I want to leave him, now I've got the freedom to do so. Um, the thing is that 10 years later, they found out that it was a statistical mistake. So in reality, <laughs> the divorce rate did not go up at all. But, you know, back then we were already in the era of Reagan and Thatcher and the idea was forgotten. How is a basic income any different to welfare? I think in, in a few important ways. The, the most important way in which it's different is that a basic income is absolutely unconditional. What we've seen in the past 30 years is that the welfare state, you know, from Holland to Australia has become more and more conditional, actually quite humiliating for the people who have to rely on it. Time and time again, the assumption is that government bureaucrats know better what the poor should do with their lives than the poor themselves. The idea behind basic income is that poverty is not a lack of character, but just a lack of cash. And you can cure a lack of cash pretty easily with cash, right? <laughs> um, and How novel. Yeah. It's, it's, once you've seen the light, it's, it's very simple, actually. <laughs> um, but it actually works. I think that's the most important thing. My book is, I believe, a very evidence-based book. And that's also, I th believe, the way forward, is to, to do more of those experiments. And that's actually what's, what's happening around the world right now. I mean, Finland is just doing a big experiment. Uh, Canada has just announced one. A lot of people in Silicon Valley are enthusiastic about this idea. So, it's, yeah, it's really spreading around the globe. But isn't there also evidence that when people come into money, they often squander it? That when they haven't had to work for it, mm -hmm. they're much, they're ma they make poor decisions? Mm -hmm. Well, if you watch a lot of reality television, then I can imagine that you, you'd believe that. <laughs> um, one of the stories in my book is about a pretty crazy experiment that happened in London 2009. And uh, this was a was uh, social organization that worked with chronically homeless men. And there were about 13 of them, and they had tried pretty much everything at that point, and nothing really worked. So it was, it was simply time for something new. And, and one of the, the people who worked there said, you know, why not try something like really new? Let's just give them money. 3,000 pounds, and let's see what happens. Now, even at that organization, obviously, most people were quite skeptical, but, I mean, they were wasting money anyway, so let's see what happens. Now, a year after the experiment, seven out of 13 of the men, and some of them had been living on the streets for 40 years, but seven out of 13 of the men had a roof above their head, two more had applied for housing, and all had made significant decisions to invest in their lives. So what did they use the money for? Uh, one of them uh, bought a dictionary, 
another uh, bought hearing aid, uh, one of them took gardening classes. Um, it was pretty incredible to see that the money really empowered the men, and for the first time they, they felt like society trusted them to make their own decisions. Now, the twist comes at the end, because um, that, that's, that's when you look at the financial side of the story. Uh, you could say, well, we've got to do this because you know, we've got to pity the poor, or pity the homeless. It's the moral thing to do. But it actually also makes financial sense. Uh, the project in total cost 50,000 pounds. That was about seven times less than what they would normally spend on these homeless men. So even The Economist, you know, not a very utopian left-wing magazine, right? Even they wrote, uh, the best way to spend money on the homeless might be just to give it to them. And to be honest, I think that is almost always the case, that if we want to help the poor, just solve the problem. You know, don't try to manage the symptoms, but solve the problem. And the problem is a lack of cash. That's it. Because you talk in your TED talk about uh, the other approaches of, of people thinking they know what's best and buying certain things for them and mm -hmm. giving them, you know, giving poor kids teddy bears in countries and, mm -hmm. and so on and yeah. things they don't need. Yeah, that was funny actually at the, uh, <clears throat> when I gave... <clears throat> when I gave the TED talk, I had one line in my, in my talk. I said, you know, we should get rid of the vast industry of bureaucratic paternalists and simply hand over, hand over their salaries to the poor they're supposed to help. <laughs> and, and the TED audience was really like clapping and laughing. And I was a bit like confused because I'm, I'm talking about you guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> so, what... You, 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 you uh, mentioned this at the, right at the outset that people thought that, that one of the instincts people have is that doesn't this create kind of a, a bunch of lazy sloths who don't work anymore mm -hmm. and just collect the money? That's kind of instinctively what you think yeah. would end up happening. Yeah. A bunch of people would say, well, what am I going to go to work for? I'm getting paid anyway. Exactly, exactly. I think we have a very mistaken image of human nature. I mean, if you watch a lot of the news, as most of us do, it's, I believe, one of the biggest addictions in our society. Thank um, God. Uh, <laughs> well, good for you. Uh, <laughs> it's a big problem for me, actually. <laughs> I mean, the news is always about exceptions, right? It's about things that go wrong, about corruption, crises, terrorism. So if you watch a lot of the news, at the end of the day, you know exactly how the world doesn't work, because you've only heard about these weird exceptions, and, and you'll have a quite negative image of human nature. You'll think that most people, again, they, that they are probably going to be lazy or want to be free riders, etc. So I think the only way to combat that misperception is by telling stories about what actually happens when you give people something like free money. And the book is full of those kind of stories. A, a lot of people uh, on the surface would look at this and say this is a bunch of sort of socialist tribe, mm -hmm. because apart from anything else, it, it sort of runs, it would seem to run entirely counter to capitalism and the notion of kind of small government. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's completely the other way around. I believe the basic income would be the crowning achievement of capitalism. Um, it would give everyone the freedom to start a new company, move to a different job, move to a different city. It will make capitalism much more dynamic. I mean, if you think about it, just the incredible amount of talent we are wasting right now in two ways. So still, around the developed world, millions of people are withering away in poverty. That's just a very bad use of resources, to say it like an economist would. Um, 
And the, I mean, I think one of the biggest taboos here is that about a third of the workforce, according to recent polls, is now stuck in a job that they think is completely meaningless, right? So there was a poll in, in the UK uh, two years ago, found that 37% of British workers have a job that they think is just useless, doesn't add anything of value. Now, I'm not talking about teachers or garbage collectors or nurses here. I'm talking about consultants and bankers and lawyers, etc. So people who are very successful <laughs> in the knowledge economy, who have great resumes, great salaries, who still, at the end of the day, well, maybe you need to give them one beer or two, but they'll admit at the end of the day that it's not very useful what they're doing. In fact, in the book you talk, um, I think you call them bullshit jobs. Well, that... that <laughs> <laughs> Am I quoting you correctly? Well, uh, it's, it's a very scientific concept that I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was originally coined by uh, David Graeber, an American anthropologist, who wrote a fascinating essay on the, on the phenomenon of bullshit jobs. And it's just, it's just astounding, you know. When I, when I started researching it, I first thought, you know, how big can this be, right? I mean, we've got capitalism, we've got the, the, the invisible hand that is supposed to get rid of all bullshit of old jobs that are not very necessary. Started researching it more and more, and, and people, when I f f wrote about it, people started sending me emails and tweets and, and you know, connecting on Facebook and saying, yes, 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 yes. I have one of those jobs. I, I've got one of those jobs, <laughs> yeah, the, this is about me. <laughs> Actually, I've done, done a few events. Um, I've the, the, the one event just after the election of Donald Trump, and it, it was probably because also people were really rethinking their lives, you know, <laughs> in, those, in that week. And I was doing an event, and, and the chair asked the audience, you know, who has a bullshit job? And I think about a third of all hands went up, went up in the air. So it's, 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 it's... So define a bullshit job. I don't know. That's not for me. So that, that's the brilliant thing about No, but what, what makes job. it a bullshit job? Well, people can define it for themselves, right? So if people say about their own job that it doesn't add anything of value, that they're basically just sending emails to other people all day, or writing reports <laughs> no one reads, or inventing financial products that only destroy value, or... Uh, Sounds like to, politics. Trying to get people click on ads all the time. I mean, that's basically what, what a big part of the economy is right now. There's some interesting research from... Um, when we look at what uh, graduates of Ivy League universities in the US do, you know, just 30, 40 years ago, they all went to work for NGOs, universities, government, etc. Nowadays, they go either to Wall Street or Silicon Valley. Now, what they do, do they do in Wall Street? They start rent-seeking. They start dis actually destroying value. If you don't believe me, read the recent reports from the International Mon Monetary Fund. I mean, they're basically saying the same thing. And Silicon Valley, well, there's a great quote from, a, um, from someone who worked at Facebook for a few years, and he said that uh, uh, the best minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click ads. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Mm. There was also you write about the, the strikes and different different um, different yeah. classes of workers going out on strike. Talk us through that. Well, I was just thinking. I mean, there is one other way that you could find whether you have a bullshit job, yes or no. I mean, just stop doing it, right, and see what happens. So I thought, you know, I, I, I'm going to... Another just, scientific experiment. Yeah, exactly. I, I thought I'm just going to look throughout history what happened when different professions went on strike. 
So at first I thought, you know, I want to look at a profession that is really, really important, that if they go on strike, it's a disaster. I thought the doctors are probably a good example. So I looked it up, and actually when doctors go on strike, life expectancy goes up. Uh, <laughs> so there was probably not a very good example. <laughs> Then I thought, well, probably garbage collectors, they are probably a good example. And in the, throughout history, you know, whenever they go on strike, it is a disaster. So in the, in the book, I tell the story of a strike of garbage collectors in New York in 1968. It lasted for just six days and the emergency state had to be declared. And it turns out, you know, a big city like New York, they really cannot do without garbage collectors. Uh, and, then, and then I, well, I wondered, you know, has it ever happened throughout all of old history that the bankers went on strike? I was really curious about that. So I started researching it and researching it and I started actually, I don't know, 3000 BC, <laughs> with the rise of finance, etc. And I found only one example in all world history, and this was in Ireland, 1970. The bankers were angry that their wages were not keeping up with inflation, so they said, you know what, you'll have it, we'll just stop working, and then you'll see just how important we are. And at that point, you know, all the experts, all the economists, they all predicted this would be a heart attack for the economy, right? We really cannot do without these bankers. The strike started, And <laughs> nothing much happened, actually. So <laughs> uh, the, the garbage collector strike was six days, and this strike was six months, actually. Um, and, and then the bankers came back and said, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> we'll get back to work. So, yeah, Who'd have it's... thought the bankers have bullshit jobs? Who'd have thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I think what actually, what in reality happened was, was even more interesting is that what the Irish did is they immediately invented their own financial system. So they started writing IOUs to each other, you know, on the, on the backs of cigar boxes or on toilet paper or whatever. And uh, the This new... is the Irish. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, but and <laughs> what's also important here were the, uh, the pubs. So there were 15,000 pubs at that time in Ireland. And the owners of the pubs basically became the new bankers. Um, <laughs> there's, there's, It's so Irish. <laughs> there's, there's one economist who later wrote that, you know, if you sell liquids to your clients, then you probably also know something about their liquidity, right? Um, so that is, that is what happened. Uh, they invented a new financial system. The economy just kept growing. Uh, businesses just kept operating. It wasn't a huge deal. And actually, when uh, one journalist Wrote, wrote about this, this event uh, 20, 30 years later. She said, well, people don't remember much about it, probably because, you know, it didn't change much. And that's probably why so many people have forgotten about this, the one, only, one and only strike of bankers in all of world history. Um, and I think it also shows that, sure, I mean, we need a financial sector or we need a money system. The Irish immediately invented a new one, but we can't do without a lot of the bullshit that is in the current one, you know, all the speculation and stuff. So if there is, if it makes as, as uh, much eminent sense as, as you say and, and, and so well articulate the idea of the basic um, universal income, why hasn't it been more widely adopted? I don't know. I, I don't believe, as a, as a historian, I don't believe in big historical laws or reasons or whatever. I think that if you really delve into the history of basic income in the 70s, that you'll just be astonished by the, by the coincidences and that it could easily have gone the other way. Um, 
What I think is fascinating is that if you look at these kind of utopian ideas, uh, crazy ideas, you could say, is that they always start on the fringes of society. They always start with people who are dismissed as unreasonable and unrealistic, etc. And then they start to move towards the center. So if you look at the basic income debate, you know, it started in the 60s, and then at the end of the 60s, everyone thought that was going to be happen. And at the beginning of the 70s, people said, or Nixon said, sure, let's implement it. And I, I think we can sort of see history repeating itself right now. I mean, just a few years ago, in 2013, when I first wrote about basic income, well, you should know that the, the, the Dutch word for basic income is basisinkomen, which sort of means base salary. And we only used it in one context back then as the base salary of the bankers. So when I wrote about basic income, first people thought, you know, you want to hire base salaries for bankers? What are you talking about? Um, and now, I mean, just a few years later, you see all these experiments popping up. And actually, sometimes even politicians are debating it. But I think it also shows you that it never begins with politicians. It only ends there, just like it almost ended with Nixon. But it, it will never start there. Is it now gaining currency and a, a, a certain inevitability because of the rapid uh, pace of automation and mm -hmm. the talk of artificial intelligence, meaning robots are going to take all our jobs, you know, the, some of the um, predictions of 50, 60 percent mm -hmm. of all jobs done now won't exist in sort of 20 or 30 years. Mm -hmm. Is that just going to necessitate this conversation where we have to find a way to, to survive one way or another? Well, again, as a historian, if you, if you look at that debate, uh, that robots are going to take all our jobs, you sort of have the feeling like, I heard this before. And then you go back to the archives in the, for the 60s, for example, or also in the 1920s, people were saying it as well. Uh, this is a very old story. So if you are a journalist right now, I don't know, working for Wired or something like that, or a tech magazine, I really recommend go to the archives, copy paste, publish again. You're done for the day. Um, <laughs> so I think what we underestimated is that capitalism has a quite extraordinary ability to come up with new bullshit jobs, right? <laughs> this can go on for a very long time. And that's, that's, that's really something that people didn't predict in the 60s. They thought, you know, if the robots are going to take all those jobs, which they did, you know, then we'll just start on living the good life and boredom will be the great challenge of the future. But they never thought that, that capitalism would be so adaptive. I mean, now it's 30% or 40%. It could be 60% in the future. It could be 100%. I mean, it's theoretically possible that we'll live in a society where everyone is just pretending to work <laughs> while we're all, in reality, browsing Facebook. I mean, many workplaces <laughs> are already like that, right? Exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Look, one of the other um, issues you raise in the book is the concept of open borders. Uh, which we've actually talked about on this stage before. Mm -hmm. It's a radical concept, and for most people, especially in the parliament, they think chaos. Mm -hmm. You only have to look to Germany, they would say, and what happened with a million people flooding in. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not chaos there. I live quite close to Germany, and they're doing quite well, actually. It's <laughs> certainly the story that politicians want to tell, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, the idea of open borders around the globe is definitely the most radical idea in my book. But it's, it might also be the most important one. Because I believe that utopian thinking always starts with thinking about what is wrong with our current society or the current world. It always starts with the injustices in the here and now. 
So a basic income is the answer to millions of people in meaningless jobs, millions of people in poverty. The idea of a 15-hour work week is the answer to you know, so many people that are completely stressed out and have no time to, to devote to things that they really care about. And open borders is the answer to probably the biggest injustice all of the world. It's just the incredible inequality that, that, is, that still exists. And meanwhile, we've got a mountain of evidence, and I go over all that evidence in, in the chapter about open borders, that shows that so many of the things that we have against immigration are simply factually incorrect. So no, um, you know, they, they're not lazy, they don't take our jobs, they actually create more jobs. Um, it's not true that they're all violent criminals, etc., etc. If you look at the actual data, it's simply not true. So I, thought, I, I felt I had to talk about that most utopian of ideas as well. What happens to the countries left behind? So the countries that are uh, not, not wealthy mm -hmm. or prosperous and in conflict and, and so on. Uh, if everyone flees, mm -hmm. what happens? They just become failed states. I think the evidence shows that home countries benefit from immigration as well. So if we look at something like the, the amount of money that immigrants send back to their own country, it's triple the amount of official development aid. So that's pretty huge. And if we have actually breathing borders, so people are able to get into a different country but also get back, then, you know, almost everyone wants to get back to their, to their home country at some point. Uh, there's some fascinating evidence uh, uh, about the border um, between Mexico and the US here. So in the 1970s and in the 1980s, uh, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans moved to the US. And it was very easy to get to the US. And about 80% of them moved back again, because it was easy to get back as well. Now, still hundreds of th thousands of Mexicans go to the US, but they don't go back anymore. So that's what you do when you build walls. People still come, but they don't go back anymore. So they're, they're, they're very, very counterproductive. The same thing is happening in Europe right now. The higher the walls, the more illegal immigrants you're going to get. Is there likely to be any political appetite for open borders anytime soon? I don't know. I mean, I think that the real politicians are not in places like Canberra or Washington or Westminster or something like that. I think that real politics with a capital P is about changing the zeitgeist, right? About talking about new ideas, what we're trying to do here. And um, if, 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 if more and more people recognize that the, the status quo is simply unfeasible, you know, that we need new ideas, which is, I believe, happening right now. I mean, after 2016 with Trump and Brexit, I mean, it's obviously clear to so many people that we, that we can't go on like this. Um, so, yeah, I'm, 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 I always say that I'm not an, an optimist or a pessimist, I'm a possibilist. You know, I, th I believe that things can be different. But if we want to, want it to be different, you know, we've got to get up and do something, right? With, with the issue of open borders, just in a very pragmatic sort of logistic sense, if everyone floods into a country at the same time, how does the state cope? Where do they sleep? How are they fed? Mm -hmm. If they haven't got any money? What do they do? Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, the idea of open borders is, an, is a utopian vision for the future. I think that the road to utopia is always about a lot of small steps that you can take in the direction, like taking a little bit more immigrants and a little bit more, etc., and experimenting along the way and seeing what you can manage. 
I think that is, that is what we should be striving for. And maybe in the future, you know, in the year 2200 or 2300, we'll look back on our time and, and wonder about, you know, what a crazy unjust system it was that people were not free to move wherever they wanted. A, a, a lot of your um, underlying, a lot of what you talk about uh, as being utopia is about trying to address inequality. Uh, and I'm wondering what you thought of the Occupy movement coming mm -hmm. as it did after the global financial crisis. It seemed sort of very well timed to capture an international anger mm -hmm. about inequality and, and the mood would have seemed to have been right mm -hmm. for change. Did you think the Occupy movement was a bit of a lost opportunity? I think so, yes. Um, what I've always been really fascinated by is the huge role that crises play in world history. So if we look, for example, at the rise of neoliberalism, it's quite interesting that it all started at the end of the 1940s with Milton Friedman, the economist, Friedrich von Hayek, the philosopher, coming together with a few other guys. And they were very lonely back then. They said, you know, everyone is a socialist right now. Everyone is a Keynesian right now. Um, but what we are going to do is we are going to try and build a movement, develop ideas, you know, start new institutions, think tanks, etc. And there will be a time at some point in the future, and it might take years and years, but there will be a time when the current economic system or the, the, the current body of ideas just, just breaks down. And they were right. I mean, in the 70s with stagflation and the oil crises and the, uh, the inflation, etc., it was suddenly clear that the, the, it was time for something new, according to many people at least. And they really grabbed that opportunity and they injected those new ideas, neoliberal ideas that they had been inventing and developing for so long into the public debate. So it wasn't Reagan or Thatcher that, that started this revolution, you know. They, they were just, uh, they inherited these ideas from, from other people. The problem with two, 2008, with the financial crash and the Occupy movement was that there were no new ideas. I mean, that's, and I, th I think that is still the problem so often with the left these days, is that it only knows what it's against, right? Against austerity, against the establishment, against homophobia, against racism, against, against everything. I mean, there was even the title of a book recently published by a, a New York intellectual, Against Everything. First chapter, Against Exercise. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm against it all as well, but <laughs> you also have to be for something. Right? We have, need some vision of where we want to go, because that is what progress is always like. It is always, as Oscar Wilde once wrote, the realization of utopias. So we need some vision of utopia. So, so uh, you mention in the book that, that back in the 70s, this was trialled in Canada, the yeah. basic income. Yeah. Talk us through that and why it was abandoned. Uh, this experiment started in 1974, and it was in uh, Dauphin, a small town there. Uh, what they did is, well, they basically eradicated poverty there. So everyone that fell below the poverty line, his income or her income was immediately topped up. It was called the town with no poverty. How many people in the town? Um, a few thousand. So the amount of families that received support was a thousand families. Um, now, what happened is that uh, for four years, there were a lot of economists and sociologists and anthropologists who, you know, all descended on the town and did their research, you know, did interviews, collected data, etc. Now, after those four years, they wanted to start analyzing the results. But, you know, it was 1978 and a new conservative government had come to power. 
And they thought, you know, this is a really weird experiment. What are you doing? I mean, you're just giving free money to people and now you even want to analyze the results. Well, we already know what the results are. It was a disaster, I mean, obviously. Um, so there was no money left to analyze the results. What they did is they put all the interviews, all the data, they put it all in the archives, 2,000 boxes, and everyone forgot about it. It was only 25 years later that a Canadian professor, uh, Evelyn Forget, found the records, did the analysis, and discovered that it had been a huge success. Uh, healthcare costs went down, uh, hospital emissions went down by 8.5%, which is huge. If you think about how, just how much we're spending on healthcare in developed countries these days, uh, again, crime went down, kids performed much better in school, domestic violence went down, uh, mental health complaints were down. And, uh, you know, what people worry most about, or often, is that, you know, was everyone lazy? No. Like, total work hours declined by um, about 1%. And almost every time this was compensated by people doing more volunteers' work or going to school longer or that kind of thing. So this is one of the most uh, thorough basic income experiments that was ever done, uh, but we had forgotten about it for so long. Why was it abandoned? If, presumably, anecdotally mm -hmm. at least, they knew it was working, they mm -hmm. would have felt that it was working. Mm -hmm. I think it was really the zeitgeist that was shifting back then. So, I mean, it, it was in the 70s that obviously neoliberal, uh, neoliberalism took off, right? And a conservative government came to power in 1978, which was already incredibly influenced by these ideas. Uh, I mean, it was only a few years later that Reagan and Thatcher took, took the stage. So, yeah, I think that basic income sort of missed its opportunity or its, 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 uh, to, yeah, to, become to become real. If you want to start making your way to... It's very hard for us to see over here, but if you've got a question for Rutger, just... Um, Hop over to number one or number two over here, and I'll draw you into the conversation. Go ahead. Quick. <laughs> Hi, Rutger. You're quick. I'm, I'm, I'm Danny. Um, I'm actually part of the Basic Income Net Earth Network. Cool. Um, we're a global um, uh, group that are trying to promote basic income around the world. Um, and part of the challenge that I'm having in Australia at the moment is that the conversation isn't being taken seriously. Um, I think you've sold the idea very much um, to people. A lot of people were nodding their heads, so I think that's a really good sign. Um, but what's your advice for um, you know, getting corporations, mm -hmm. getting politicians to actually start listening and to listen to people like me and not think I'm just some leftist young person who doesn't mm -hmm. know what she's talking about? <laughs> what I've discovered in the past few years is that it's really effective to use right-wing language to, to defend progressive ideas. <laughs> so what I'm saying all the time to these business leaders or politicians, I'm saying, well, maybe you don't have a heart, but at least you have a wallet, right? Yeah. So it, it, it simply makes financial sense. Um, I think it's also, it's, it's no coincidence that so many people in Silicon Valley are now interested. Um, if, we, if we sort of point out that basic income is an investment, that in the long run pays for itself. And in that sense, it's literally free money. Um, that is, that is, that is uh, probably much more convincing to people on the other side of the political spectrum than if you just keep on saying, oh, the current system is so unfair and we need to pity these poor people, etc., and it's immoral to let them live in poverty, which I think is true, but it will only, I don't know, it will only appeal to a, a certain part of the population and we need to get bigger than that.
And is this, when you're talking about the financial benefits and it paying itself back, you're talking about the, the, the lower health costs and exactly, all exactly. the other things So there was that, one that study in the 1990s, actually a, sort of a natural experiment. What happened is that a casino opened in North Carolina and it was operated by the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians and they were allowed to just distribute the earnings among their members. So suddenly thousands of people, many of them lived in poverty, received eight, $9,000. And there's an economist from UCLA, his name is Randall O'Kee, who later calculated that the savings, again, in lower healthcare costs, kids performing better in school, lower crime rates, these savings were bigger than the cash grants themselves. Now just think about that. That is, that is really radical and really fascinating. It has huge implications for, for how, what we should do about poverty and, and about this whole debate. Because normally the debate goes like this. The left says, we've got to help these poor people. And then the right says, yeah, maybe, but it's too expensive. End of the debate, right? But if you, I mean, you can really flip it around if it's like, we've got to do this because it makes sense. I mean, this is an investment. It's just a good business decision. Does it end up harmonizing what everybody earns? So it, 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 it in itself mm -hmm. is, is more equalizing? That oh, that's, that's a really great question. Um, and it's also one of the most overlooked effects of a basic income. So just imagine if you are a garbage collector, a teacher, or a nurse, and you suddenly receive a basic income. Well, it is also a universal strike fund, right? You can go on strike all the time. Uh, so you'll have a lot more bargaining power and your wage will probably have to go up. Now, if you are a banker or a consultant or a lawyer or whatever, and you go on strike, well, nothing Nobody much happens. Cares, yeah. So you don't have extra bargaining power and your wage will probably go down a little bit. Um, so if we implement a basic income, in the long run, wages will start reflecting the social value of different jobs much more. And we could move towards a society where cleaners earn more than bankers. And I'd like to live in that society, actually. <laughs> hey, um, I'd like to know where will the money come from? Will it be like a tax of the multinationals? And also, who are your staunchest critics and how do you navigate them? Okay, so this is, this is obviously a very important part of the whole basic income debate. Like, how are we going to finance it? And I believe that the devil is really in the details. So there are many, many ways to do this. There, there are some forms of basic income out there that I believe would be a disaster. There are some neo libertarians on the right, for example, who say, let's just get rid of the whole welfare state. You know, let's get rid of universal health care. Let's get rid of public education. And, and just give people one cash ground transfer and that's it. That's not what I'm arguing for. I think that basic income should be the crowning achievement of capitalism, but also of, of social democracy. It should really be you know, implemented as, as a supplement to universal healthcare and public edu education, which are incredibly important achievements of the 20th century. Um, now, I'd like to finance the basic income in a way with taxes, so not just print out the money, but with taxes, just like we fund um, the welfare state right now, I'd like to fund it in a way that it will reduce inequality. And, well, there are, there are, there are probably different sources you'd need, but the most obvious thing to start with is wealth. Just uh, if you look at the, the incredible inequality that is growing around the world, you know, in the, in, in the Western world as well, I mean, uh, everyone has heard of Thomas Piketty, right? We didn't actually read his book, but... <laughs> 
we know his argument, um, it's probably the, the, the most logical place to start. Uh, but there are many versions out there. Uh, so we should, we should be wary of, of, well, it sometimes happens that people say, oh, he, everyone is in favor of basic income, but we're actually talking about different things. So that's something to look out for. And, and the second part of your question was, the, oh, who are your staunchest critics and how do you, how do you navigate them? I think that the, like the, the biggest criticism that comes up time and time again is that people basically say, well, this all sounds very nice and well, but you've just got a misguided view of what humanity is really like. That is, that is something that people get back to all the time. Like, in the end, humans are just corrupt and we want to be free riders. And, you know, deep down, we're just monsters or animals. And civilization is this very thin layer. And you're just being very naive about all this. What I think is that that vision of human nature is very unrealistic and very naive. That, that is something that the, the evidence actually shows us. But the, deep down, or fundamentally, the debate around basic income is a debate around what we are really like. Are we nice and creative? Do we want to contribute to the common good? You know, are we essentially social beings? Or are we all freeloaders, uh, free riders that just are selfish and want to get as much for ourselves? That is, that is the big debate that is behind basic income. Thank you. Yes. All right, Rutger, thank you for putting forth your thoughts this afternoon. Um, I'm a fan of the Universal Basic Income as an initiative. Um, mm -hmm. I've come across it and read a bit on it in the last couple of years. Uh, I think it's important for it to be understood not as a new concept, but rather that it's something that has been around for a while. Um, maybe it's just gotten lost a bit in the last generation. Um, I guess my thoughts on it is that um, there seems to be a lot of distrust from both sides of politics as to how it's to be administered on a government level. Um, so I suppose my question is this, um, how best is it, how best can it be administered um, on a government level? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's basically my question. What will probably not happen is that a basic income will be implemented in one stroke. We will probably get there gradually, you know, one small step after another. And there are, there are many roads to utopia. So one of the ways, or one of the roads is, is the roads of experiments, you know, just doing more of those experiments and, and seeing what works along the way. I mean, that's happening in Finland, in Canada, and in other places. The other thing you could do is to make our current welfare system more basic income-ish, you know, to, to move it in that direction, you know, make it a bit more unconditional, make it a bit more universal. Uh, make it a bit more individual. Uh, you could, the you the could political problem with that, pardon the interruption, the political problem mm -hmm. with that and always is that society generally doesn't want to give wealthy people more money. It, it just really depends on, on how you frame it. So with a, with a basic income, if you, if you would finance it with a wealth tax, for example, or with progressive taxation, Sure, the rich will receive a basic income, but they'll pay for five basic incomes or 10 basic incomes or whatever. Um, if we compare co different countries now internationally, it's actually the countries with the most universal systems where, for example, also the middle class or even the rich benefit from free childcare or whatever, free public education. It is those countries that are 
that are best at reducing poverty. And the reason is very simple. If everyone benefits, it's just very difficult to get rid of a certain policy or a certain system. Um, the problem in the UK and the US is that they have very targeted systems of welfare. And then if a politician comes along and is looking for money, you know, it's very easy to get rid of those policies or, or, or that, that kind of very small targeted welfare state. And these people aren't, are not really able to defend themselves. You know? They won't lo lose a lot of votes when they do that. Now, if you have a very universal welfare state, like in Northern Europe or in Australia as well, especially when you look at universal health care, uh, it's nearly impossible to get rid of. Mm. You know, in many countries, if, as a politician, you really want to touch universal health care, I mean, you're finished as a politician. Now, we've got one state that has implemented a small basic income. It's Alaska. They, they, they finance it with oil money, and it's about $2,000 each year. Now, if, as a politician in Alaska, you want to touch that money, and you, which some politicians have tried, it's the end of your career. And that operates throughout Alaska? Uh, yeah, yeah. So if you, I, th I believe if you've lived there for a few years, you'll, and, you'll and get it. And does it cancel out other welfare payments? No, no, no. It's just a It's in addition to other specific yeah. welfare yeah. measures. And it, uh, the framing is also, again, very different. So a basic income is a right. It's not a favor. It's just something you, you deserve simply because you exist. Now, the, the, the language we use around our current welfare system is really one of conditionality. Like, only the, the deserving poor can get it. And you really have to prove time and time again that you're sick enough, that you are depressed enough, that you are really a hopeless case that will never get anything done in your whole life. And it, once you've proved that, then you'll get a very small amount of money. Now, <laughs> just, just imagine what that does to people. You know, if you got into fill, fill in thousands of, of forums and interviews, etc., where you, all the time you're basically talking yourself down. Well, is it really surprising that then people become depressed and, and, and find it very hard to get a job? Right? It's... Hi, Luca. My name's Matt, and um, as a bureaucrat in a bullshit job, I take a lot of offence to what you say <laughs> in this whole talk. But <laughs> as you know, um, the modern welfare state has indexation regimes that keep the rate of payment in line with things yeah. like inflation. So what kind of indexation regime are you envisioning for a universal basic income? And if you give people that base level of income, won't the price of products just rise in accordance mm -hmm. with that level? It's a good question. So. It really depends, again, on how you finance it. If you just would fund the basic income with printing a lot of extra money, then you're obviously going to get inflation in the long run. Now, there are some economists right now who sh say we should do that because there's not a lot of demand in the economy. Uh, Milton Friedman called this helicopter money, like just throwing money out of helicopters. Uh, <laughs> other people call it quantitative easing for the people. Like We're now doing it only for the banks, but then for everyone. But obviously... <laughs> In the long run, that's not a solution, right? Because you'll get mass inflation. Um, so what we have to do is to finance the basic income with taxes. Now, this means that the, 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 like the money supply, the amount of money, will just be the same. Then inflation is still a risk, but only if people will turn out to be massively lazy. Because then you'll have the same amount of money chasing um, fewer products and services, and then you'll get inflation. Now, a big part of my book is obviously about showing that that is simply not the case, that actually it will probably make the labor market more dynamic. Um, now, if, if 
inflation is locally, for example, still a problem, then there are side policies you could use, like indexation, etc. And I think that is just, I mean, we've, we've got a lot of great researchers around the, the world that, that try and answer the question, you know, how much money do you need to live a proper life, you know, without poverty and a difference from country to country. But I always say that the basic income has to be high enough to get people out of poverty and just afford the basic needs. Thank you. Did you want to ask a follow-up question? Yeah, I mean, politics, po uh, poverty is a relative concept. There are five mm -hmm. different measurements of poverty that I know off the top of my head. It's like, it's a relative concept you're talking about. So saying it has to be yeah. set at, poverty, at the poverty level is yeah. almost... To be I don't honest, mean to be offensive, I, I but it's almost a meaningless statement. To be honest, I get that remark a lot, like, oh, there will always be poverty there because we've defined it in a relative way. But, I mean... If you live in poverty, even in a rich country, you simply cannot participate in, on, a, you know, on a proper level in society. And there's not much relative about that. And th there's, there's a lot of research out there that shows that we, we can eradicate it. You know, we can have a society in Australia or in Holland, where I'm from, where everyone has the means to make their own choices, where no one has to worry about you know, being able to pay the rent or feeding their children or whatever. Um, and every society should have obviously have a discussion, a democratic discussion about what the definition of poverty is. And sure, um, uh, if when we get richer, then probably the poverty line will go up. But that's what progress should look like, right? Thanks, guys. Yes. Yeah. Hi. Um, my question is about how do you see this working in countries of differing income levels? Mm -hmm. So middle income, low income, and how do you also see this as a possibility of maybe changing how, where economic power is concentrated? Mm -hmm. um, right now, in India, there's a lot of interest in, in basic income. Uh, actually, on a, on a high political level, they're, they're, you could say that they're ahead of other countries. Um, why? Well, the reason is very simple. India has hundreds or maybe thousands of anti-poverty programs that are very ineffective. I mean, there's a lot of corruption, a lot of bureaucracy, and the actual amount of money that reaches the people who really need it is, is little compared to the amount of money that is sent in the first place. So probably, it's, it's probably true that basic income is a more promising idea for the developing world than for the developed world. Um, it could really make a huge difference there. And it, uh, the, the thinking behind it is already making a huge different, difference. In the book, I talk about an NGO called Give Directly. Well, the name says it all. They just give money directly to extremely poor people in Uganda or Kenya. And what's so great about On this... On a per capita basis, rather than channeling it through the government. Exactly, exactly. Just 500 or $1,000 in huge cash, cash grants. They're now also doing the biggest basic income study that has ever been done with 10,000 participants. In Uganda. Yeah, and in Kenya. Really exciting. Um, and what's also very interesting about this organization is that, in the first place, uh, technological breakthroughs have made this possible. So what they can do is just give people a SIM card and transfer the money to it and that, that, that works very well. That was simply not possible 30 years ago. And the, the second place is that they do incredibly thorough scientific research on, on, on the, you know, the charity that they do, which is you know, a big exception in the world of, of NGOs and uh, charity NGOs. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, they, these randomized controlled trials time and time 
uh, find that it's, that it's just a really effective way. I mean, it's pretty crazy if, if you think about it, that we are sending white people in SUVs to incredibly poor countries. Well, if we just you know, sell the SUV and hand over their salaries, <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a lot more effective. But we are such incredible paternalists. We always believe that we know what's best for the poor. We know what's best for them. Well, we don't. We really have no idea. It's the same... Um, it's, the same basic, it's the same basic concept around uh, microfinancing mm -hmm. in, in uh, developing countries. Exactly. That exactly. you give them a loan and... Yeah. It's just that the cash transfers... I mean, they, they come out as much more effective in, in recent scientific research. Um, it's just much more, yeah, if you look at the outcomes, there's, there's quite, quite a lot of, it's actually hundreds of studies right now that are, in, especially in the global south, where NGOs and governments have experimented with, you know, just giving free cash, or sometimes with small conditions, such as you got to have your kids vaccinated or send them to school, but it's a very different kind of welfare state that we are used to. How long has Finland been doing it? Oh, just since the 1st of January this year. So and how's that going? Is it the whole still country? Still waiting for the results? No, it's just an experiment with 2,000 participants. But it's interesting to see what, what will happen. Mm. Yes. My name's Eva Cox, and I'm a well-known local stirrer. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, very, I'm part of a group that's trying to get the basic income stuff off in, going in Australia. We are spending a very large amount of money on the opposite of a basic income, of a UBI at the moment, spending it particularly on something called the cashless debit card, where we're persecuting the poor by taking away their cash. I reckon that we need to ask our government, and I'm interested in your viewpoint, to put some of that cash into an experiment by giving the same indigenous groups, mainly indigenous communities, mm -hmm. that have been put onto a highly conditional card where they have no control over their cash, only 20% of it, maybe 50 in the Northern Territory, to actually experiment and give the same people a two to three year break on, a ca on an unconditional card, because I think, given the evidence you've put up here, it would provide evidence for a country which is extremely means test oriented mm -hmm. and extraordinarily paternalistic, that we could actually show that that particular way of paying money is much more productive. What do you think? Well, I completely agree with you. That, that's, that... There's a, there's a whole story in the paper today where the minister has come out delightedly saying, it works. I've been going through the data and I'm, I used to teach research methods and he's wrong. Uh -huh. It doesn't work. His data is all <laughs> wrong. Well, th there's, there's one small problem that I've encountered a few times is that, you know, when you talk about experiments, you really have to be a barbarian to be against experiments, right? We always got to try new stuff and see what works and what doesn't. I mean, every... I mean, big companies doing experiments all the time, but somehow governments are not experimenting. But that's what you should do. I mean, that's the way you learn new things. Now, what I've had a few times, actually, I, want, I had a conversation with a conser conservative politician a few months ago in Holland. And he said, yeah, experiments are interesting, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is that it might work. <laughs> and then, <laughs> I think that's what they're scared of here. That's and I said, did you hear try. what you're actually yeah. saying right now? <laughs> so that's, that is... I think what some politicians are afraid of with the basic income experiments. They're really afraid that it might work very, very well. Thank you. Why would they be scared of that? Well, then their whole ideology would crumble, right? The, you'd, you'd have to, yeah, revolutionize the, uh, the welfare state. So that is something that people don't like changing their minds. 
That's, that's something that we find very hard as individuals. And that's also why these crises play such a big role in world history, because these are like moments that everything breaks down and no one knows what's true anymore. And that's the moments that, that things change. And it's a good opportunity for things to change. Exactly. Mm. Thank you, Eva. Thank you. Hi, yes. Rutger. Um, just getting back to financing again, you've touched on automation previously. Uh, so given the possibility that we'll have perhaps nearly all human labor wiped out by robots in the long term, and given that in the tech industries, you know, generally the activity is dominated by single players, Facebook, Google, Amazon, mm -hmm. do you see the possibility that half a dozen companies could be controlling the bulk of the world economy? And how are we going to get the money off them? Do we socialize at all? Mm -hmm. Do we tax them 90%? What do we do? Well, you know, I gave a good talk at Google X uh, a few months ago while I was on a book tour in the US. And um, uh, it was quite shocking, actually. Uh, someone who said to me, you know, basic income, that's a great idea. Uh, Alphabet could finance that, you know, the parent company of Google. Uh, we could give about $100 to everyone in California. And uh, no problem, we'll, we'll get basic income. And I thought, well, maybe Google should th start paying taxes first. You know, that, that'd be... <laughs> That'd be a great start, right? So, did you did you say that to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was sort of laugh, laughing it off, like yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> he, th he thought that was very unrealistic of me to assume that whatever. <laughs> to assume that they should pay tax. <laughs> yeah, or that they ever will. <laughs> yeah. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you that one of the big challenges of our time is that there's so much power, you know, now concentrating in, in a very s small amount of these huge companies. And uh, yeah, that is a challenge we've seen before in the 19th century. And we came up with solutions back then. We broke up some of those companies. We, um, some of them were even nationalized or taxed very heavily. I mean, there, there are lots of stuff you can do about that. But it's obvious that democracies uh, will be threatened if you don't so do something about that kind of power accumulating. Could I ask a follow-up? Um, so if we're talking about these kind of measures, at the moment these players are relatively, you know, they're relatively small compared to what they will be in the future. Therefore, they're not the same vested interest today that they would be when you actually needed to have these measures in. Do you think these measures need to be implemented sooner rather than later? Oh, we should have done it 40 years ago. I mean, some people say we, we need basic income as an insurance policy for the rise of the robots. We've already got the evidence. We've got the means. Uh, we, have, we, we can't waste much time on this, I believe. I mean, there are now millions of people withering away in poverty. We are now wasting a huge amount of talent of people you know, doing completely useless jobs. That is going on right now. So this is not just some abstract future I'm talking about. It is a very practical idea that we can do tomorrow. Actually, it's also probably the least radical idea in my book. I mean, uh, really rethinking work or open borders, much more uh, radical and, and utopian. I'm so sorry, everyone. We are out of time. I need to wrap the session. But you can continue uh, chatting to uh, Rutger when he signs your uh, books out there. Do continue the conversation. But for now, please join me in thanking Rutger Bregman. Interesting provocations from Rutger Bregman, whose job is decidedly not bullshit. And if you like this talk, make sure you subscribe to Ideas at the House wherever you get your podcasts. 
Next week, we look locally at lockout laws and their impact on Sydney's cultural scene with FBI Managing Director Claire Holland.